Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Last episode, we introduced William the Silent, the Prince of Orange, and King Philip II of Spain, who also happened to be the Duke of Brabant and Gelders, Count of Holland, Flanders, Zeeland, Artois, Margrave of, you know what, let's just say Lord of the Netherlands. And we introduced the troubles occurring in those low countries, thanks mostly to the zealous attempt to eradicate Protestantism through the use of fire, although also in some part to the complete refusal on Philip's part to recognize the ancient rights and privileges of the nobility that he had agreed upon when he took all those titles. This episode, we'll follow William and the rest of the Dutch nobility as the tensions rise further, and we'll meet Philip's response to the trouble in his most lucrative of European territories, the Duke of Alba. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. Comments or questions can be directed there, or send me an email at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com, or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is episode 3.7, The Dutch Revolt Part 2, William and the Duke of Alba, and this is The Almost Forgotten. When we last left the Habsburg Netherlands, King Philip of Spain had responded to the people's cries to lighten up on the Inquisition and the murder, and to his stadholders' requests for some amount of decision-making power, with a tepid maybe followed quickly by a flat refusal. William, the Prince of Orange, was beginning to see that a revolution was coming if Philip didn't give a little. At the end of 1565, after the king's response, the seeds of a real resistance began to form. Margaret of Parma's son, Alexander, was married in Brussels at the end of the year, and all the nobility was gathered in the capital to celebrate. Louis of Nassau, one of William's younger brothers, sent a Protestant preacher to speak secretly to some of the more sympathetic, albeit lesser, nobles. Louis and other nobles, such as the Lord of Brederode, met, and drafted a document which was sent around to these men in early 1566. And it was written in such a way that the Catholics too would be able to sign it as long as they thought slaughtering of Dutch citizens by the church should be abated. It condemned the Inquisition and stated plainly that the king's Spanish interlocutors were giving him a bad name in the Netherlands and violating their oaths to him. William did not sign the petition, but he was very close with Lewis and likely knew what was happening. He probably gave the movement guidance, and it was just a strategic decision to keep him, a high noble who sat on the state council and was one of the stadholders, off the list of names, as he possibly still had the opportunity to change the government's course directly. William was, after all, an actual prince, which was a meaningful and important title. And we have some inkling that he was more involved in these conversations than it appears. Before the letter was made public, in early January of 1566, he wrote to the regent. He certainly knew he was writing to Philip through her, but he warned her that the potential to end the Inquisition 
was all that kept the country from falling to pieces. He wasn't just saying that to be dramatic. The Netherlands was still a commercial powerhouse, but people were starting to flee. Industry was suffering in Spain's foremost economic region, as was trade. 30,000 Dutch had already left for England and were welcomed by Queen Elizabeth, a non-Catholic, as immigrants who could teach their skills and lend their talents to her country, even though she did not approve of their interpretation of religious reform. In trying to find a model of success, William pointed to France, a Catholic country that had managed to work out its religious issues and compromise to move ahead peacefully as an example. That example would change drastically later on, before the moment Huguenots held some of the highest offices of France. It wasn't just the emigrations that concerned him, of course. He estimated in his letters that perhaps 50,000 people had been killed because of the edicts. He was not usually a man given to exaggeration, although he was a talented politician, so that number may have been high. The youngest nobles, though somewhat amateurish and mostly fond of getting together for drinking, and to me at least both of those traits make them entirely relatable, knew they now had a purpose. In March of 1566, they resolved to create a formal request to the government. This group and the petition that followed was called the Compromise of Nobles and was one of the many steps towards independence from Spain. On April 5th, Henry, the Count of Brederode, entered Brussels at the head of 300 noblemen on horseback. Henry, or Henrik van Brederode, was from an ancient Hollander family. His ancestor Dirk van Brederode lived in the early 1200s and held one of the highest offices in the county of Holland, basically a steward. Van Brederodes had also been stadtholders in the past. The Brederode name meant something. Many of the other men, like Brederode, had familial descent to the earliest feudal lords of the Netherlands. As they approached the regent's palace, the compromise of nobles was greeted by thunderous applause from the crowd of citizens who had gathered to watch. They entered the state council chamber, where William of Orange, Margaret of Parma, Viglius, and the others were meeting. Brederode, waiting until everyone had entered the room, strode forth and made a speech. He first addressed rumors of their desire for a new sovereign, vehemently denying this. He then read a letter, possibly written by Philips of Marnix, Lord of St. Aldegond, which contained all the protestations against the Inquisition and the usurpation of rights, and the worries about common people leaving, or rising up, that you'd expect. It also stated that even the loyal Catholic nobles lived in fear of false accusations leading to their execution and the confiscation of their family lands. The regent was appalled that they would dare to question the king's decisions in such a manner, like fainting couch appalled. William tried to calm her down, explaining that these were good, honorable, and loyal men trying to save the country, not destroy it. Berlaymont, one of the loyalists on the council, was less impressed. He told Margaret they had nothing to fear from these lowly, unimportant nobles. Actually, what he was supposed to have said is, N'ayez pas peur, madame. Ce n'est sans que des gueux, which means, don't be afraid, madam, they are just beggars. And so, the revolutionaries had found a nickname. The group, after presenting their petition, felt as if they had triumphed, 
Nobody told them this was going to be an 80-year war, so they went out to celebrate. At a banquet, they adopted the name which was meant to mock them. They toasted and yelled, Long live the beggars all night, something that would turn into a sort of battle cry. What's somewhat ironic about this show of unity among the Dutch nobles is that, like I said last episode, they didn't consider themselves a unified state. They were just Deutsch, German peoples, mostly speaking what they called Flemish, early modern Dutch, living in different counties or whatever in the Low Countries. Philip's father, Charles V, had introduced something called the Pragmatic Sanction less than 20 years earlier in 1549, which had attempted to reorganize the Holy Roman Empire's 17 provinces of the Low Countries into a single entity which would be inherited by one man. This unification, another move that trampled on their rights and privileges, which were different for each province, was not appreciated by the nobles living there. So, of course, that dissatisfaction helped drive their desire to unite against their overlord. In an effort to calm things down, the council, led by Viglius and Margaret, came up with a set of articles. They essentially said that all the converts who were simply misguided, but not doing any misguiding themselves, would be spared the stake and only banished. It actually sounded somewhat reasonable. In theory, Protestant preachers would still be burned, but others would simply be exiled. In practice, though, it was worse. As Motley puts it, quote, Who were these other heretics? All persons who discussed religious matters were to be put to death. All persons not having studied theology at a renowned university, who searched and expounded the scriptures, were to be put to death. All persons in whose houses any act of the perverse religion should be committed were to be put to death. All persons who harbored or protected ministers and teachers of any sect were to be put to death. All the criminals thus carefully enumerated were to be executed, whether repentant or not. If, however, they abjured their errors, they were to be beheaded instead of being strangled, unquote. Essentially, what Motley was saying was it still allowed for the same brutality or significant mercy for most, depending on who was interpreting it. The Dutch were asking for so little from Philip. With the council and Margaret in agreement, at least to do something to stop a full-on revolution, it looked like maybe they were finally getting somewhere. Two men, Count Horn's younger brother Floris de Montmorency and John IV of Glimes, the Marquis of Bergen, were chosen to present the compromise to Philip. At this point, the negotiations were really about avoiding a true insurrection. The people were at the brink, and many of the nobles had just laid down an ultimatum. Margaret and Philip would interpret this as treason and revolt, but they hadn't seen nothing yet. Floris left in late May, stopping in France, where the Spanish ambassador warned him that Philip was really not pleased with this whole beggar's business. Someone else in Paris told him, He ought to figure out how to avoid the duty, feign illness or something. But he kept going, arriving in Madrid in June. John of Glimes was delayed when he was hit by a wooden bowling ball on the lawn in front of the palace, and his leg was injured. He didn't leave Brussels till July. But they were received, perhaps without the grandeur that Egmont had been given, but with proper courtesies for their station. Philip swore up and down that he wasn't even mad and that they had nothing to fear from him. But even before they had arrived, he had sent letters to Margaret of Parma informing her 
to essentially ignore any sort of compromise. It was the same story again. The region would be on the brink of an explosion. She would allow a few minor concessions. Everyone would calm down. And then Philip would tell her to backtrack and refuse them or ignore them, all the while telling the Dutch that he was willing to compromise with them. The problem for Philip, though, was at this point, the popular revolution had already started. Banned from practicing their worship in the churches, but feeling like the king was finally giving them some amount of freedom, the people started to attend sermons. The middle classes, the peasants, even the lesser nobility would gather in the fields outside of the cities to hear preachers, and they would come armed, just in case anyone decided to inform them that it was unlawful. It wasn't the first time there had been field preaching, as it was called. But a few years back, the Inquisition stamped it out, with lots of summary executions. This time it returned in force, outside of Tournai. First 6,000, then 10, then 20,000 gathered to hear sermons. Sermons in the local vernacular, for crying out loud. It really started taking root throughout Flanders. The local authorities could not, or would not, stop groups of armed men who were there to listen to these preachers. The preaching spread northward. That summer, outside of Harlem, very close to Amsterdam, the first Reformation preachers ever to give sermons in Holland drew such crowds that other nearby cities emptied out for the day. The summer produced more and more of these events, and it became clear that if Philip decided to forcefully suppress it, it could be disastrous. Count Louis of Nassau said it best, quote, There will soon be a hard nut to crack. The king will never grant the preaching, and the people will never give it up, unquote. The regent, meanwhile, didn't know what to do. She had no money and no permission from the king to raise a force to stop the gatherings. And the provinces might be able to raise more forces at this point. Things were coming to a head. People were asking folks like William and Egmont personally to lead them in rebellion. After being begged over and over, William made his way from Brussels to Antwerp, the commercial hub of the Netherlands. The road was lined with people, and tens of thousands came out to greet him. A revolution had started in the fields with the preachers by the people, and they were telling their leadership that if an actual war was coming, they'd support him. But they weren't there yet. At this point, it's only defying the king by practicing Protestantism. William worked to avoid actual war. He wanted to calm the population and keep the peace. In the name of the council, he worked compromises, allowing reform worship outside of the city, but trying to create an armed force to tamp down any real rebellion. This request was denied, probably for fear that this unnamed, oh, let's call it National Guard, could be used against the Spanish soldiers. As stadtholder, he was acting in the name of the sovereign, as was his duty, assuming the king wanted to honor his agreements with the 17 provinces. But of course, Philip actually had no interest in doing any such thing. For a brief period, William basically became the regent in place of the paralyzed Margaret of Parma. She had nothing but praise for the job he did, and he even received a letter from Philip thanking him for his tireless work. William begged to resign, but Philip wouldn't allow it, and the Prince of Orange spent the summer of 1566 keeping the Netherlands from coming apart at the seams. Not that William was fooled by the royal praise. 
He was intercepting letters between the king and his sister, complaining to each other that William was doing all of this to set himself up to rule when the revolution really broke out. It's doubtful that this was his aim at the time. He was always eager to fight for his people's rights, but reluctant to take authority himself. Meanwhile, the united young nobles, referring to themselves as the beggars, started making noise again. William's brother Lewis wrote a statement saying that they would defend their king against anyone in war, but they wouldn't just kill their own people. They also demanded the convening of the Estates General, where they wouldn't work to help quell the public. Philip responded with his usual method of delaying action, hoping the problem would go away. But the people were unable to take the persecutions any longer, and their gatherings outside the cities gave them a feeling of strength. Before that summer had even ended, that summer in which Flores de Montmorency and John of Glimes went to Madrid, that summer that William went to Antwerp and calmed the biggest city in the Netherlands, that summer that the beggars demanded some sort of release from murdering their own subjects, the summer in which Philip did almost nothing, the Netherlands finally erupted. It erupted into a frenzy of iconoclasm known as the Bialden Storm or Statue Storm. The people, still living in fear of the Inquisition and no doubt egged on by some preachers telling them that the Catholic Church was the root of all evil, took action against the churches. Over the course of about a week, starting in early August, it spread throughout the western Netherlands. Rioters, starting in the south, attacked churches and other representations of Catholicism. They destroyed everything they could get their hands on. And it soon spread from Flanders up through to Holland. Monasteries had their libraries, altars, and statues destroyed. And, it pains me to say, their casks of wine and ale were smashed open and spilled, lost forever. There was a real terror throughout the Low Countries, and it was obvious that it was spreading to Antwerp, which braced itself for the onslaught. But in Antwerp, like everywhere else, the wave of iconoclasm would wash over them and leave them without the human cost they expected. Even robbery was missing from this rioting. The hundreds of pounds of gold objects in these ancient churches were left behind, sometimes smashed, but rarely, if ever, stolen. Unfortunately, the magnificent churches in Antwerp and the art and sculpture inside did not fare so well. The great cathedral of Antwerp, the most spectacular in the Low Countries, was ransacked. When news reached Tournai that Antwerp and Ghent had been smashed up, the people rose up there and destroyed what they could. Everyone condemned the rioting, including the leading reformist preachers. William of Orange rebuked it as well, and everyone agreed that this was the work of lower-class ruffians, not the real men of state who needed to hammer out an agreement. True as this may be, it makes it all the more amazing the amount of gold, silver, silks, and other valuables left behind in the churches. The rioters actually hanged one of their own for stealing. Another mob was offered real money to just walk away, but they preferred to smash up the cathedral. This was about resisting the religious persecution, venting their frustrations, and the people signaling that they couldn't take it any longer. Not that the Bialden storm deserves praise either. It may have done more than anything else to convince Philip that the Reformation must be crushed, and that nobody who ever looked askance at the persecution of heresy could be trusted. At the end of August, Margaret was ready to flee Brussels for her safety and summon the council. 
William, Egmont, and Horn, and the rest begged her to stay, saying they would defend her with their own lives if anyone were to come for her. She berated them for letting the situation come to what it had, but eventually relented to a pledge between the government and the Confederacy of Minor Nobles. The beggars promised they would dissolve as a union, and Margaret declared that the Inquisition would end, and Philip would issue an edict protecting everyone from reprisals for past transgressions. She also guaranteed that the field preaching would be allowed, as long as Catholics remained unmolested. In essence, it was an agreement for religious freedom of sorts, but while she had reluctantly okayed it, Philip had not yet done anything. He did respond after much delay, but it was to an earlier request, the two deputies sent to him in Madrid. He sent a letter to Brussels acknowledging that the Inquisition would be stopped and everyone should be pardoned, and at some point in the future, a more moderate way of keeping the Netherlands from succumbing to heresy would be enacted. This again seems to point to some hope, even if it wasn't what Philip really intended, and he hadn't yet heard about the destruction in the churches. Not that it really mattered. As he was writing that letter, Philip was simultaneously writing to the Pope and confiding in others that he had no intention of ending anything other than tamping down the killings for a bit to keep the country from descending into anarchy. William and the others knew it, though. They knew there was nothing to be trusted in these letters from the king. Viglius asked the king to appear before his subjects or convene the estates general, otherwise anarchy would return. But Philip continued to write privately to the regent that she should never allow the states general to convene. The response, filled with promises that the king had never intended to keep, arrived coincidentally around the time as the rioting started. After that follow-up agreement, Margaret wrote to Philip that they were signed under duress in her name only, not his, and that they were agreed only to be enforced until the king and the states general came up with a final agreement. She also became convinced that William and his friends were trying to oust the government. She wrote letters stating things that were not true, like that Egmont was in league with the Confederation of Lesser Nobles, that Horn wanted to kill any Catholic priests in the Netherlands, and that William was planning on becoming king and dividing the spoils. Unfortunately, the rioting had caused a backlash, not yet with Philip, although that would come. Rather, Nominal allies to their cause, especially Catholic nobles like Egmont, became more resistant to it, and these men set about punishing the perpetrators that they could find. Egmont returned to Flanders and executed suspected rioters. William, on the other hand, pulled together articles based on the regent's agreement. He met with Reformation leaders in Antwerp and was able to get an agreement signed in early September. The agreement stated that the two religious groups would have to play nice and not antagonize each other. The agreement actually served to bring some calm to the region, starting in Antwerp, but reverberating through the major cities of the Low Countries. But William knew that it was a temporary peace. He still had spies feeding him Philip's supposedly private letters, and he knew the man well enough to realize he'd never forgive the rioting and iconoclasm. William's insight was not unique. An Englishman who, in today's terms, ran his kingdom's consulate in Antwerp, wrote to Queen Elizabeth, suggesting they start pulling up stakes and selling property in the city because of the impending conflict. Egmont and Horn, along with the other nobles, went back to their own cities to try and quell the disturbances. 
They did what they could and occasionally made some concessions to the mob while trying to honor what Philip would want. But any concessions were read by Margaret as treason, and she communicated to Philip that the government was going to be overthrown. And in some ways, she was right. Not in the paranoid way she thought, nobles all plotting against the king, but rather from a people who just couldn't take it anymore. The Prince of Orange knew the whole thing was crashing down around them, and his safety in Antwerp was no longer guaranteed. He saw that even he could not keep the peace well enough to prevent some sort of reaction from the Spanish, and he envisioned what that reaction would be. Philip would use mercenaries to come in and clean house. He could hire tens of thousands of soldiers from some Catholic German principality, and they would march into an essentially undefended Netherlands, quickly take the cities, capture William, and execute him for treason. While he was working to maintain order and prevent chaos, by what was defined in the articles that the regent herself signed, William knew it wasn't worth the paper on which it was written. William resigned himself to having to stand and fight if the other senior noblemen of the Netherlands would join him. They could muster a force that would prevent an invasion. He arranged a secret meeting with Egmont, Horn, his brother Count Louis, and Antoine II of Lalang, the Count of Hoogstraten. Count Hoogstraten was a close confidant of William's brother, Louis. He was, like Louis, one of the more distinguished of the compatriots that called themselves the Beggars, and his family had actually helped raise Margaret of Parma at Charles V's behest. Louis, and probably William as well, advocated that they had to raise a force to defend themselves, or their lives would surely be in danger. Egmont was vehemently against what was clearly treason. He was steadfastly loyal from that point on, although he still had a big role to play in sparking a wider revolt. Horn was a more somber type, not interested in heroics, and basically said he hadn't done anything wrong. He'd just been trying to stop rebellion with a concession here or there to the reformists in Tournai. He'd retire to his estate and stay out of the affairs of the council from now on. Philip could do as he pleased with the country. Despite years of service and loyalty, Philip had barely acknowledged him with any thanks, and he was in serious debt from his service. Horn was just done with it all. He lamented jealously about his brother Floris, still on that mission to Madrid, lucky to be away from all this trouble. These two men were Catholics. They were men who had personal relationships with Philip. Egmont helped Spain beat up France and enter its golden age, the height of its power and influence. They didn't feel they had anything to fear. William read the situation quite differently. The Spanish, meanwhile, began garrisoning towns in Flanders and Artois with the few troops they did have in order to keep the peace. Egmont helped his king with this attempt to impose order. Valencian, where the very first action of resistance took place a few years before, refused the garrison, and was besieged by Philip of Noircarme at the end of 1566. Noircarme was a native of the Low Countries, one of the loyalist members of the state council, and the new stadtholder of Haino. By the time the calendar turned, the first real battles had begun. Outside of Valencian, a group of a few thousand citizens attempting to act as soldiers gathered to relieve the city with their worn-out or inferior arms and their complete lack of martial drilling or skills. Noircar made quick work of them, 
killing many on the first charge with his trained soldiers. It was in the first week or two of the year 1567 when the first rebels were killed in battle. Valencian remained under siege. The countryside around it was being pillaged, and relief seemed impossible. Meanwhile, the regent now decided, after the slaughtering of the first ever rebel army, that it was time for these Dutch vassal lords to take a new oath to king and country. Some of the lords were more than happy to swear to obey the government in every order, no matter what. William of Orange, though, would not do it. He plainly stated that he swore oaths already, and that he would do anything that was actually in the interest of the monarch. It was a convenient and flexible way to phrase it but he refused to take a pledge to follow orders no matter what they were. And so, he resigned. He went to Antwerp in February, where his friend Hoogstraten was now in charge. Outside of Antwerp, a group of rebels were moving around Flanders before winding up in Oosterweel, a small village outside the city gates. They dug entrenchments and more flocked to the cause. Somewhere between two and three thousand were gathered, planning to link up with Brederode, that leader of the Compromise of Nobles, who was now in open rebellion against the region, and trying to raise troops to relieve Valencian. A group of experienced soldiers were able to sneak up on them, and the veterans made quick work of the Calvinist rookies. The battle ended quickly, and the large Protestant population inside Antwerp began to realize what was happening. They rushed towards the gate, 10,000 men, to try to rescue their already doomed co-religionists. But William climbed on his horse and rode out to prevent an even worse slaughter. He implored the crowd to stay within the city walls, that it was too late to help. They jeered him, called him a papist, and threatened him. Alone in the crowd, William the Silent was able to convince almost all of them to turn back. The following day, they barricaded themselves in the city, demanding that Antwerp should not have a Spanish garrison, among other things. William worked tirelessly to keep them in place rather than rioting. Meanwhile, the Lutherans barricaded themselves in another part of the city, fearful of what may happen to them. The Catholics, not wanting to miss out on the fighting, also gathered in the city. On the morning of the 15th, William, along with Hoogstraten, approached the Calvinists. There, he read articles of compromise arranged from leaders of the various parties. He reminded them that already agreed upon conditions promised freedom of worship and banned foreign garrisons. He also noted that they were outnumbered by the combined Catholics and Lutherans. He then yelled, God save the king, for quite possibly the last time ever, and after getting a positive response, left the scene, saving the city of Antwerp from tearing itself apart. It's hard to say, though, that this honorable man wasn't giving what he knew were false promises. He was on his way out the door, and he didn't trust the word of Philip or that of Margaret. He had to have known that the concessions wouldn't stand. But he had saved the city from slaughter at the moment, although he must have realized that the situation would change again soon. Unfortunately, he only postponed the death and destruction in Antwerp, which was a few years away from one of the darkest days in the history of the Low Countries. Speaking of bad news, Valencian was still under siege by Noircarm. They were offered somewhat lenient terms by the regent, with Egmont and the Duke of Ayrshot as her representatives. They declined, and this city, 
besieged with no inkling of relief in sight, essentially responded with the most favorable terms they could think of. Egmont exploded with rage, saying he'd burn the city and kill every last ungrateful citizen. In the end, the city was attacked, with Egmont leading the charge and fighting for King Philip. But it quickly capitulated, with an agreement that the city would not be sacked. The leaders were arrested, though, and executed, as were hundreds of others. Over the next two years, people were marched out and executed in Valencian, as those who helped the rebels were constantly being uncovered. Antwerp soon followed this capitulation in April by allowing the garrison in its city, rather than also resisting. It was around this time, spring of 1567, that Fernando Alvarez de Toledo, the Duke of Alba, one of the leading military commanders of the Spanish Empire and a member of Philip's council, was selected to take over as Governor General of the Netherlands. William, the Prince of Orange and the Baron of the City of Breda, Count of several other regions, would have to take direct orders from the Duke of Alba, a high-ranking but Spanish nobleman. There were all sorts of reasons why this offended his sense of status, on top of all of the other reasons why he was annoyed, at the treatment of the Netherlands by the king. All this together convinced William it was time to leave. First, he again met with Egmont and a couple of other nobles. He told them he was going to his family's lands in Germany, and that he would no longer hold any official duties in the Low Countries. He tried to convince his friend Egmont to leave as well, but Egmont took comfort in his recent actions against the people and for the king, that he was still in Philip's good graces. A true Catholic, he was happy to follow orders now, after the rioting and disorder of the last year. The two men hugged each other, and then William left for Germany. William, on his way out the door, sent a letter to King Philip, saying in his convenient way that he was resigning all offices, but he'd be happy to come back and serve the king if he believed he was truly doing good service for the king. He also wrote letters to his friends Egmont and Horn saying that he hoped they wouldn't be angry with him, that he was their true friends, but he could not in good conscience stay. At the end of April, he left for his birthplace of Dillenburg in the small Holy Roman County of Nassau, east of Cologne, less than 200 miles east of Brussels itself. And it was lucky that he did. Motley writes, quote, Not long after his arrival in Germany, Vandenes, the king's private secretary, but Orange's secret agent, wrote him word that he had read letters from the king to Alba, in which the duke was instructed to arrest the prince as soon as he could lay hands upon him and not let his trial last more than 24 hours, unquote. William found out his suspicions were right after all. And at the same time, the king was writing letters to Egmont, praising him for taking the oath, while no doubt giving the very same instructions to Alba for Egmont and others who had transgressed even slightly against the monarchy. With the rebellion fizzling out, Brederode, that leader of the beggars, begged for clemency for Margaret and Alba, but he received no promises. He left Amsterdam for exile in Germany as well, but didn't make it more than a year, probably drinking himself to death. The resistance in the Netherlands was shattered in the nobility, but the people who believed in the Reformed churches continued to believe in the Reformed churches. Philip decided to destroy them once and for all, and brought in another army from Spanish imperial territories, mostly in Italy, to serve under Alba. 
The Duke of Alba was a leading general for Spain, the most powerful empire in the world at the time. He's considered today to be one of the great generals of the period, and by the time he came to the Netherlands, he was 60 years old. He was Charles V's major domo. He was a studious military commander. He took Tunis from Hayred and Barbarossa, the subject of Season 1, Episode 9 of The Almost Forgotten. He defeated the French army in a decisive and important battle at Perpignan and helped Charles defeat Saxony in a war in Germany at the head of his army. He helped defeat the French and Papal forces in Italy in the 1550s, but missed out on the great battles that Egmont led against France itself. He was a brilliant tactician, and even in his time was considered one of the best military commanders in all of Europe. Setting out in May with his contingent of Italian troops, Alba marched up through Burgundy, with French forces shadowing him for fear of an incursion, before reaching Luxembourg, the southernmost of the 17 provinces, in August of 1567. Egmont went out to greet him there, as did Noircarm, welcoming what some saw as an armed invasion. But Alba did not receive Egmont warmly. He thought of him as a traitor and a heretic. Egmont was no heretic to the Catholic faith, but he had done a few things here and there that wouldn't be considered following orders blindly in the past, although now he was completely on board. This reception suggests just what the opinion of Egmont was in Madrid, where Alba had been before being named to the post. Alba came there, he said, to prepare the Low Countries for the king's eventual arrival, although letters written by the regent, William the Silent, the Pope, and Cardinal Granval, all suggested almost nobody believed Philip was going to show up. The real reason he was there was simple. He was there to imprison and then eventually execute, when it was convenient, anyone who had taken part in any sort of resistance to the Inquisition. If you even looked at the Inquisition funny, you were done. Then they would put new leaders in place who would be more willing to cooperate, and they could rule the low countries from Madrid without fear of anyone telling them they were doing it wrong. Oh, and he was there to totally destroy the Reformation, burning anyone who did something heretical like read the scriptures in any language besides Latin, or know of anyone who did it without reporting it, or whatever. Egmont was warned by a Spanish general who was his friend that he was not well regarded in Spain. He laughed it off as the furthest thing from the truth. Lamoral de Egmont was brave and a good military commander, but he was not a shrewd political operator. The truth was that Alba was moving quickly. In September, almost as soon as he got to Brussels, he invited Egmont as well as Count Horn to a dinner. Horn had wanted to retire, but Alba and his son Don Fernando had sent letters to Horn prior to arriving with warm regards. Even the day before the dinner, a Spanish officer approached Egmont and told him to flee. But on September 9th, the dinner was attended by Egmont, Horn, Don Fernando, Noir Carm, and other noblemen. Even during this dinner, it's said that Egmont was warned to flee. His spidey sense finally started tingling, and he got up to get some air, debating what to do. Noir Carm and other Walloon loyalists told him that he shouldn't put faith in someone he didn't know, that fleeing would only make him look like a traitor, and that he had nothing to worry about. The dinner, which took place early in the day, as they did back then, wrapped up around 4 p.m. They went to a house nearby to greet the Duke of Alba. 
They all talked and discussed the building of a fortress in Antwerp. Alba got up to leave, but the group still talked until about 7 p.m. At that point it ended, and the captain of the Duke's guard asked Egmont to surrender his sword. With that, a group of armed Spanish soldiers burst in and arrested him. Count Horn was arrested after the council broke up when he was walking home. All of their papers and correspondences were almost immediately seized to make a case against them. Not that it was necessary in an absolute monarchy, but a show trial always needs a little show. The Count of Hoogstraten wasn't arrested. That's because he had been injured in an accident and wasn't yet ready to travel. He learned of the arrest in time to avoid his own capture. As for the rest of the Netherlands, well, Alba sent out an announcement that same day that he would be creating a new court to deal with the recent troubles. It was named the Council of Troubles because it was to deal with the troubles that had been plaguing the Netherlands. But soon enough, everyone just called it the Blood Council. The engine of state shifted focus quickly to executing anyone and everyone who seemed like they might have even thought something anti-Catholic or anti-Spanish at any point. No more ancient privileges, no agreements, just a tribunal led by Alba that would condemn to death whoever he so pleased. There was no official authority, no grant from the king, nothing formal that suggested the Blood Council had any right to act or exist, other than the force of arms Alba brought with him. Now, Philip probably told him to do just this. But once again, this flew in the face of the various rights and privileges of the 17 provinces that Philip had sworn to uphold. Alba had final authority and felt well within his rights to ignore any laws that might get in his way. As he wrote to Philip, quote, Men of law only condemn for crimes which are proved, whereas your majesty knows that affairs of state are governed by very different rules from the laws which they have here, unquote. Most people who the council accused were condemned without a trial if they were deemed unimportant. A few dozen at a time from one city or another would be sentenced to execution. The authorities came and collected hundreds of burghers out of their bed during a holiday, a sting that yielded 500 prisoners who were killed within 24 hours. In December of 1567, the Duchess Margaret of Parma left her regency, knowing she went from being practically a figurehead to not even that. It was time for her to leave the provinces. As the calendar turned to 1568, the leaders of the Compromise and anyone else who stood up against the Inquisition and begged for Cardinal Granville's dismissal were summoned to appear before the Blood Council. William of Orange Nassau, Stadtholder of Holland and Zealand was summoned. His brother, Count Louis of Nassau, Count Hoogstraten, and others were told if they did not appear before the court, their titles and properties were forfeit. Of course, none did. William was accused of leading a rebellion. William replied to the court order by flatly stating he was a knight of the fleece, a sovereign prince of Orange, a member of the Holy Roman Empire, and a citizen of the Netherlands. Any one of these would entitle him to a fair trial in front of actual judges, instead of this illegal council. Knights of the Fleece could only be tried by other Knights of the Fleece, with a minimum number of Knights of the Fleece present. He said he'd be willing to appear before his fellow Knights, or even forgo these rights, and he would appear before the Holy Roman Emperor, or the Empire's electors, if requested. Unable to reach William, they took his son, Philip William, 13 at the time, 
from his studies at Louvain in Brabant. He was kidnapped in February and taken to Spain as a hostage. The child wasn't thrown in prison, though, and instead was raised as a Catholic in the Spanish court. While there were probably ulterior motives to treat him well, such as envisioning using him as a pretender to any lands William might take, and he was kidnapped, Philip had him raised according to his noble station. Also in February, the Pope essentially sentenced all of the Netherlands to death, other than a few named individuals. Philip confirmed his agreement to the statement. Three million people now given papal and royal authority to be executed. Philip did not actually expect to free the land of every living human being, but he was giving himself authority to do it. At this point, in early 1568, people were killed for simply having money. Claiming they were heretics was an easy way to take their property and help fund the government. Of course, the entire country shook with fear, and civil order began to break down. People calling themselves the Wild Beggars, a nickname stolen from those revolutionary nobles, roamed the country, robbing and killing. Mostly they aimed themselves at Catholic monasteries, but it would be inaccurate to say they stayed within the lines there. With Egmont and Horn imprisoned, William in Germany, and Alba now in full control of the government, willing to kill anyone who smelled funny, things were not going well for those with rebellious sentiments in the Low Countries. And things were about to get much more bleak and desperate before they got any better. Next time, we'll see only a few rays of hope and learn just how bad it gets before a real potential bit of good news comes from a pretty surprising place, the sea. Thanks for listening.